the other day we had on Rick Snay from Delphi After Dark. He grew up in Logansport, which apparently is very close to Delphi, and he has close ties to the area. He stated that he received a couple of pictures of the crime scene, and he told everybody on our show Wednesday mm-hmm. night that he was going to be drawing the crime scene out on a uh, on a picture for everybody to see, and so that we can see for ourselves what crime scene actually looked like as far as the stick the sticks and the body placement. He had that today, and this is the drawing that he came up with. Here's the drawing that Rick Snake came up with, referencing the crime scene from the four pictures that he received. First things first, it looks pretty different to me than what was described or what we had seen previously. And what do you think? Yeah, there's some similarities, um, but there is differences too as well. You know what I mean? I mean, besides the fact that, you know, the branches were used to make some kind of symbol or they were placed in specific ways. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, the branches and, and the logs were what the biggest question mark was. So I'm going to try to do a side-by-side here in a second. Let me say. He was saying that, was he the only one who received pictures or were the other creators actually received them too? My understanding, other creators had as well. It wasn't just Rick. I know that, I want to say it was Murder Sheet that also has, has seen them or has... They are aware of them, and I think they. I, I don't think I don't know if they got them from Rick or if they got them from somewhere else, but they do have them. Here are the, here's the drawings, or here's what it came out on on uh, Court TV on the right side, and on the left side we have what Rick Snay drew. You know, there was that ask to start off with Abby's what he has drawn for Abby. So first and foremost, the hand placement is different. Um, on the right side, it appears that the hands are, are upward, but I think that's because they're using a shadow. And so if they would have put the hands in the position that Rick Snape placed them, they wouldn't be visible, right? So I think that's why that's there. The asterisk isn't as obvious. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, like I said, like, there's the similarities are there. Like you said, the the way the branches on the on Rick's uh, drawing is a lot more different than the one from the doc, documents. Does it look more random to you or does it look less random? Um, it looks just, it just looks random on, on Rick's more than, than on the other one, the right hand side. That one looks more, you know, planned out and then made sure that the branches are, you know, in a certain. When I look at the position of, of Abby's body from the drawing that Rick put out there, <clears throat> And he said that they the arms were placed on his chest, kind of like the chicken dance, one leg under the other. Could it be possible? And I think that the, I struggle with this only being one person, right? If there was two people there, do you think that it's possible if one person was holding the body from um, the arms and the other person holding the legs when they placed the body on the ground that the, they would fall into this position? Maybe the arms, but I don't know about the... I mean, they could easily put the arms in that position, but the legs, you're carrying a body using their legs, you- I'm sure they're gonna put the you know, hold them for the legs for the for the ankles, just place them down, right? Yeah, because more what they did that on purpose for some reason. Now he said that the antlers looked more like an antennas, and this is the way he drew them out. I don't know if that looks like horns either, but we also have to remember that the bodies weren't found right away; they were found the next day. So I don't know if there could have been animals that had moved something you know, crawling through there, or possibly uh, wind or any of the other elements that are out there. That could have moved some of this stuff. Like there's even a chance, especially if like, for instance, these branches are just laid on top of each other. If, you know, the human body isn't flat. If this larger branch here was like in the middle, it's possible it could have rolled one way or the other and just landed there. You know what I mean? But it's true. Not only that, but I remember we were looking through a lot of the took pictures of after they found the bodies. They took pictures of, you know, from where the cemetery is at towards that spot. 
And I remember seeing there was like a cat, like there was animals around there. So I'm sure there was like deer around too that probably mm-hmm. just wander around and might have, you know, disturbed that that scene too. You know what I mean? Especially if it's like in that wooded area, you can see some of the, the trails in there. Yeah. From deer. Yeah. Now, one thing that Rick said on his live today, he stated that on Libby's body that there was blood on her hand. And it's speculated that he was speculating that it was possible that that blood was Abby's. Now, this is 100% speculation. I don't know if this is true or not, but that if it were Abby's blood on, on her hand, then that would literally be some sort of signal or sign. Libby had Abby's blood on her hands, literally. And so I thought that was weird or odd because when the bodies were described, Abigail didn't have any blood on her. It appeared that, you know, based on the description from the defense team, the killer or killers went through went to great lengths to not uh, have the body full of blood you know you have one that has blood dripped on them and the other one that went to or went through some great lengths in Rick Snay's drawings he has Abby kind of looking up to her hand her hand stretched out and and her foot coming down one way the branch he described was more of a the large branch here was more of maybe perhaps like a, a small tree trunk or a down tree this looks a lot different than what was explained, you know, obviously on the right side. But I can see, you know, how they explained it. They, they said that there was two branches that veed off near the uh, genital area of the body, which appears to have that here, the two branches. And the long branch that went along the left side, it, it, it's there. It's just not as descriptive. When it's uh, described and how it's described, it looks like it's plausible, the one on the right side. So what, what do you think about this? This looks weird, don't it? Sure does, man. It's just like, it's hard to, I mean, without seeing the actual pictures, I can't really, you know, you can't really like make sure it's just, you can't compare them, you know, to these two drawings. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't want to see the pictures, you know? I don't understand, but like, yeah, no, I don't know anybody that would want to see them either. Yeah. And like, it's, uh, it's just hard. Like we got to take someone's word for it. You know, you see this symbol right here that says man for Man for man, there's a line going straight, kind of like a V and a line. If Abby's body extended from her arm down to her foot, and if you were to kind of move it sideways, it kind of it kind of looks like this symbol was almost trying to be made, in my opinion. What what do you think? Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, I can see that. Um, yeah, no, we, now, we, now, we, now, we, now, we, now I can see it. Now that you move <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, you'd have to look at it like tilting the picture yeah. so that her arm and her leg are horizontal up and down or vertical i'm sorry up and down and at that point you you would probably be able to see all these other lines going across and things like that yeah. did, did, it, did they ever say anything about the cuts on the branches were they like straight cuts or he said that one pieces? of them was he said no. one of them was yeah he, he said that there was a picture where that part of the branch is facing the camera so he's, he, he almost thought that that was what the uh, main focus of that picture was, was to capture the clean cut. Fact. Yeah, there was a clean cut there. This makes me think different, not make me think differently, but there is some question mark here. It, it's hard to tell whether or not it was random. Like, why would, all right, let's start, let, let's think about this logically. Why would a person, after committing this crime, put sticks on somebody if it weren't ritualistic? Like, what would be the purpose? To hide the bodies? What do you think? Um, if they were trying to hide the bodies, they did a horrible job. Tell you that. Right. Uh, I think it might have been just to, to confuse the law enforcement, maybe, to make them seem like it is part of a, you know, some kind of so, ritual. But, so staged. Uh, kind of, yeah, staged in a way. That way they can, you know, the person that actually did it uh, can confuse the law enforcement, maybe. Because, like, I don't know, it's just like if there's only one branch that has a clean cut, the rest are all that were found there. Um, and there mm-hmm. were someone that did a 
was trying to do some kind of ritual, they would bring tools, right? And, you know, make those cuts or bring them from somewhere else, right? Yeah, and there the evidence for that is the fact that there's no blood on the scene. Could it have happened that, you know, well, one, one theory is that the reason why there's no blood on the scene is because they collected the blood, right? Now, we saw the guy walking on the bridge. He didn't have anything on his person that would have been, you know, to have seen him collect something. So it would have had to have been stashed over there at the scene already yeah. if, if that's the case mm-hmm. right it's, it sure seems like that especially because um they went through that creek right i believe yeah they went through they, they walked through to the that water. to that location to that specific location so it, it sure looks like it was um predestined you know yeah i i i think so as well um i think this was what the plan was the plan was to get those or i don't know if it was specifically those two girls you know but, okay, which, uh, which one was the who had blood on their hand? It kind of almost seems like it's like a symbolism, right? Like that she had her blood on her hands, that maybe that she, she shouldn't have brought her along. It was just supposed to be her. Yeah, that's what that's what the thought is. If that's true, I'm, I'm not entirely yeah, sure yeah. it's true that it's it's actually Abby's blood on her hand. That, that hasn't been confirmed. But if yes. that is yeah. the case, you know, there was some major differences here. Mm-hmm. Abigail's body was, you know, they, they went to some great effort to make sure that blood didn't get too too much on it. And they clothed her versus, you know, what Libby had to go through. And so, you know, they kept her disrobed and, you know, left blood marks and stuff like that on her. So very different, very different handling of the two. Let's go back to the missing blood. If there was nothing there and they, this wasn't pre-planned, where, where would the blood have gone? How could it have been taken out of the scene um, logically? Because I, I don't think that these girls were taken away from the scene, killed somewhere else, and then brought back. It maybe, is, uh, yeah, it's difficult to get there. Uh, maybe the creek itself? That's what I'm thinking. Maybe they... By the creek? They would have had to, according to the defense's paperwork, they would have had to have disrobed first, yeah. right? He got him disrobed, and then crime was committed. Then that would mean that he took him back to the creek, had him on the, and then here, here's where that doesn't, where it, that still yeah. is troublesome, right? Because mm-hmm. he would have had to have had him disrobed, take him back to the creek, the both of them by himself, stab one, and then the other would just have him waiting there. Like there's some, you know, stuff that doesn't make sense there. There was no uh, evidence of them being uh, tied up or anything their wrists or legs yeah, i didn't say nothing about that he didn't but he did say that he had heard that there was some rope there but i'm not sure how accurate that is he mm-hmm. said that, that wasn't present on the pictures that he had apparently what he had said was on today's live that other creators had seen or had gotten different pictures than him that some of them got the same but some of them got different pictures and that supposedly in somebody else's picture that a yellow rope can be seen. But I don't know how accurate, how accurate that is. And I don't know if he personally actually saw it himself, too. And didn't he, didn't he mention none of that on the documents or anything like that about having literature marks on the on the wrist or, or legs, right? I don't think so. Let's, see, let's go through it real quick. It says, um, maybe... Libby was found at the base of a tree with four tree branches. And here's the other thing. A lot of folks were saying, or I had seen this where it appeared that like, some of the branches were going over the areas where like some of the wounds, like he was hiding the wounds. All right. So I, I, I needed to, you know, put that out that cross, like the neck and supposedly around this area in the chest was Libby was stabbed as well. It did appear that some of these branches and sticks went across where he had um, taken their life. So it says Libby found well, Libby was found at the base of a tree with four tree branches of various sizes, intentionally placed in a very specific arrangement uh, pattern on her naked body. Libby was positioned flat on her back with her arms stretched above her head, touching the base of a large tree. Libby's right hand was covered in blood. Libby's left hand was covered in blood. 
Blood spots and blood drippings were seen all over Libby's body from head to toe. Libby's right arm was placed along the side of her body. One large tree branch had been placed on her left shoulder. This branch was so long that it extended above Libby's head several feet and below her legs several feet as well. Two smaller branches formed a V where her legs joined her body near her genitalia. So it doesn't say like right at it, but near it where her legs joined their body. So uh, right around where the hip is. So that would definitely mean that Rick Snay's drawing is more accurate, right? Sure, she was like it. So it says uh, with both sides of the V extending upward towards Libby's head, with one branch extending to the left of Libby's head and the other one to the right of her head. The last four branches extended across Libby's body in a form of a line from her shoulder, from her right shoulder to her left shoulder. These branches also connected to the other three branches that was placed under both of these branches to form the V. Libby's slice neck was partially covered by this fourth branch. So right there, there that's where they were talking about how mm -hmm. branches may have been over there. This, it says here there was no blood sprayed or dripping onto the leaves or the tree near Libby's head and, and, and injury to her neck. It appeared likely that Libby had been, her life had been taken at a nearby tree then dragged to her final resting place. So Rick Snay said that they didn't have, or he didn't see any drag marks in his pictures, but the defense's statement here says that she was dragged there. I would believe that that was because there's evidence of that dragging. What do you think? Yeah, no, for sure. And if, and if there's dragging, like if they're dragging a, a body, mm -hmm. it just seems, it, it has to be one. It seems like it's one person, right? Because if it was two, they would just pick them up, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're right. That that would make more sense if there was two people that you would um you would pick them up. Yeah, and and that's kind of what Rick Snay was saying that he stated that he felt that they had picked up the bodies and placed them there, but according to this document, they were dragged. One was dragged there. That means that thieves and dirt was all was disturbing to where she was laying, right? From the tree to where she was laying. From one tree to yeah to another tree, and I think that on that other tree or on one of these trees had the. Uh, F symbol or the ruling symbol that closely resembled the So the murderers treated Abby very differently. She was found just a few feet away from Libby. Her body was not placed parallel to Libby, but rather at an angle. But Abby's legs just a few feet from Libby's legs. However, both of their heads were found a few feet apart from each other. Significant differences existed between Libby's body, uh, how Libby body, Libby's body was found, and how Abby's body was found. Abby's was not found at the base of the tree. Abby was fully clothed. In fact, Abby was dressed in Libby's sweatshirt and jeans. No blood appeared on Abby's clothes, meaning that she likely was murdered while naked and then dressed by the murderers after she expired and after the blood had stopped spilling from her neck. Abby's hands were clean, no blood. Abby's feet were clean, no blood. Other than the blood found around Abby's neck area, the murderers had inflicted, where the murderers had inflicted the fatal wound. So wait a minute. It says where they inflicted the fatal wound. Do you think that means that there was more wounds and that was just a fatal one, or do you think that it was that is that was the only one? I'm not really sure. I think I'm sure there was at least a couple of more, you know, but that one was the one that there was no coming back from, you know. Yeah, for sure. Hmm. You, know, that, you know, just reading that out loud, that's kind of how I read it. It was like, hmm. uh, all right, very little, if any, blood was found anywhere else on Abby's body or clothing. Can't say that word. Juxtaposition of the spots and streaks of blood found all over Libby's body, but the lack of blood on Abby's body, undergarments, overgarments is stark. The murderers appear to have gone to great lengths to keep Abby's body and clothing clean from blood. Abby was found on her back like Libby. However, unlike Libby, Abby's elbows were bent with uh, her right elbows and arms placed on her chest. Abby's left hand and arm near the left side of her face and the right hand and arm near the right side of her face as well. So a lot of folks thought that when it said that her left arm and right arm were both placed on her chest, that it was vertical and it was like this instead. Mm -hmm. All right. Makes sense. So that description doesn't... Um, 
exclude or, or disprove what Rick Schnee had drove. Right, it says uh, Abby's left leg was straight while her right leg was bent at the knee. Uh, they placed the bent right leg under her left leg. So here it says that at least one of the tree branches appeared to have been cleanly cut by some sort of instrument like an electric saw. Yeah, electric saw? Wouldn't that make, make a lot of noise? Yeah, that's why I think some people think that they should have been brought. Now, uh, mm-hmm. Pat Westfall was actually on another podcast. He's the guy who basically has been person of interest number one amongst the uh, the public, the court of public opinion, so to speak. He's the guy that was friends with, with Holder, who these were the two friends who were Odinists that stopped being friends after February. Yeah. His claim that was that they stopped being friends because he found out that Holder was also going to church and was following Jesus. And he didn't think that it was right for him to follow both. However, what Holder told his wife was that they got into an argument and basically over a ritual or that during a ritual over something that one of the others had done. Yeah. Now, he also said that the only that there was uh, there's a slight connection between Elvis Fields and, and Pat Westfield. And that's basically another person. I can't remember his name off the top of my head. But that guy is who knew Elvis Fields and knew also Pat Westfield. <clears throat> and Holder basically said it was Pat's crew that had committed this crime. So very interesting things. But Elvis also said some other crazy stuff. He stated that I think it was the day after the murders, he told he told his sister that he was out there, that him and a, that he had a brother now and that him and two other people killed the two girls on a track. He mm-hmm. said that uh, during conversations with his sister, he had stated that one of them was a troublemaker, so he put horns on her and spit on her face. We now know that there are sticks above Abby's head that have been described as like antlers or horns or a crown. Yeah. So, I don't know. I don't really, those things are pretty, pretty crazy. So I, I personally think that Elvis Fields is somewhat involved. And he said that there was two other people there. You know, does that say that Richard Allen wasn't one of the other two? No, I don't know. But it's a crazy situation, man. It's a crazy situation out there in, in Delphi, Indiana. Yeah, especially, you know, hearing some of these uh, things that we were saying and then actually reading about it, it makes kind of sense what he saw. You know what I mean? Or yeah. He ex- maybe he even experienced. But we have a channel partnership called Data Seal. So if you have any concerns about your personal, your privacy, whether it's your name, your phone number, your address, your religious preferences, your voting preferences from getting out there into the world on, on the interwebs, check out data. So links in the description, they have an awesome program that'll help get all that stuff out of the, out of the interwebs. And so you, you won't be disappointed. Uh, what docs is this? This is the, um, the Delphi memorandum in support of motion from the defense, uh, basically saying everything that was uh, going on in, uh, from the defense's angle. In the Idaho case, apparently Howard Bloom had put out an article. He's been putting out like this six, seven part novel that's been, uh, or a novel that's been coming out in like six or seven parts. And in the most recent one, he basically stated that Steve Gonzalez had gone through great lengths and had met up with you know, somebody from prison. You know, he paid money and lost money. And then he stated that he somehow spoke with two grand jury persons and they told him about, you know, the receipt for $49.95 or $49.99 for the Dickies clothing and that text messages that were concerning and that there was a possible witness that they were going to speak to, but the FBI stopped them, right? That's basically all of it, right? Steve came back and said it's all that was all bull crap, that they never even spoke to Howard Bloom, which Howard says in his article that he reached out to Steve Gonzalez and, and Steve declined to comment because of the gag order. You know, what are your thoughts on that first and foremost? Like, do you think that there's no truth behind what Howard was putting out there? 
Um, what do you think about the fact that you know, the, the family's coming out and making a public statement about this? I think there's somewhat uh, truth in some of what he said, uh-huh. but there's, it also seems like there's a lot of assumption, too. You know what I mean? So yeah. when, when we read it, it wasn't like, we were reading it as fact. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. We were just giving our opinion on it or, or what the article said. Right, exactly. Exactly. You know, I'll say this. When I read that article and when I heard the podcast and said that something about a witness, I had some information, you know, to pass on to to Christy Gonzalez referencing, you know, possible witness that I had gotten back in like June or May. I sent it over to her. I was like, hey, you know, I just heard the podcast and, you know, heard that there was a possible witness. This is some information that came to me. I don't know if it helps you or not. Here it is. I don't know how true it is. And she responded to me saying, you know, thank you. And she had told me that they had heard about the witness, not that they spoke about a witness, not that they spoke to grand jurors about a witness, none of that. Right now, I didn't go into that conversation with them. I didn't or with her. I didn't, you know, ask like, oh, did, did this information, this this witness that you heard of, is that from, you know, grand jury or not? Like, I didn't go into it. That's I didn't want to know. Honestly, you know, she told me who they thought it was and I told her who I thought it was and a little bit of uh, talk about it and some other persons. And that was basically it. So I don't know anything about grand jury people, if they spoke to them, if they didn't speak to them, things like that. So I I just like I said, I don't know any of those things. I didn't ask. I don't want to know. I don't want to get involved in in any tampering or things of that. If if it happened, I'm not saying it did. I honestly have no idea. But tiptoe around those things man yeah 100 man you know there's certain things that are just you know are none of my business when it comes to a couple of you know certain things i know when to stick my nose into somewhere and when to back up a little bit you know what i mean mm-hmm. no for sure um but, I heard, they had a, there was a question on the chat let me see if i can find it oh. i thought i heard somewhere that the gag order doesn't necessarily apply to the parents of the victims is that true uh i think so but it depends on certain things and you know i'm not a I'm not a lawyer i've never been a lawyer uh, this the gag order and all that other stuff is like typically done by the courts and they're enforced by like constables and things of that nature so i'm not very familiar with it but i do think that it is highly you know unethical and, and possibly illegal when it comes to talking to a grand juror prior to court even though that grand juror isn't a part of the jury that's going to be trying you know Koberger. He's not going to be in that or he or she. I don't know. I don't know who these grand jurors are. They're not going to be a part of that. I get that aspect of it. But for the most part, they shouldn't be talking to them. I think it can put the grand jury in jeopardy, which doesn't mean they're going to throw the case out or any of that stuff. They're just going to have to redo the grand jury. Did these guys talk about what they did to the girls before or after it was released to the public? Uh, I don't understand that. Do you understand that? That's probably from Delphi, right? Right, right, right. Um, yeah, because you said talk that, about what they did to the girls. Yeah, remember you said something. They said something about yeah, yeah, the yeah. horns and the spitting on the. I don't know if I don't know if Elvis Fields ever said the crime was committed, other than they're the ones that did it and that the horns i know that when he was questioned by police that he had left and came back and said hey if my spit is found on one of the girls uh, and i can explain it am i going to get in trouble still but yeah no i i'm not familiar with elvis fields describing the scene in particular how can that be explained without getting in trouble (laughs) but that's where a follow-up question needs to come in what do you mean explain what is your explanation you know if you're investigating a crime or you're talking to somebody you can't be afraid to ask an uncomfortable uh, question you know what i'm saying you know people aren't going to sit in there and say all right you know gee willikers gosh darn it you guys got me 
it weren't for these kids, I did it. You know, that's not going to happen. You know, you got to ask some pretty tough questions. And when you get something that opens up like that, you got to you got to pound it in hard, no pun intended. But, you know, you got to go in hard on that and try to figure in, you know, what else is there? You know, strike while the iron's hot, so to speak. If you see somebody backing up into a corner, you don't let your foot off the gas and keep going at it. It also comes down. And, and here's the weird thing, man. Did you know? Carroll County investigators or whatever, supposedly, I don't know how true it is. I heard about it. I heard that they kicked the FBI out of this investigation. I didn't know you could kick the FBI out of anything. Well, it's a state crime. It's a state murder that happened within the state. So it's not a federal thing. So they can, you know, FBI can assist and, you know, use some of their equipment and skills and and technology. Some of it's like the Brian Koberger case, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, in Idaho where the murders happened. It wasn't sure if the killer came from out of state or not, or if it was from somebody from Moscow. So their, their help wasn't because it it was possibly gone from one state to another. It was just solely because law enforcement in the area was was striking out basically. Yeah. Not, not to, not to get, (laughs) go back to Delphi and and coming back, but yeah. Back to BK. Back to BK. There was a, uh, a book that's been put out there. It's called while Idaho was slept. This audio book came out. I was actually listening to Melissa Jade earlier and she was talking about some of the things that came out in this book. It's pretty interesting. This book was written by a guy named Ruben Appleman and he is from Boise, Idaho. And he actually interviewed Dylan Mortensen's father. And there's some pretty crazy stuff that is said in here. Now, it doesn't he doesn't specifically say that, you know, it came from Dylan Mortensen or that he came from Dylan Mortensen's father. You know, he just kind of writes this out as in a in a narrative or in a author like format. Think of Howard Bloom. He's putting information there, but not acquiring where exactly he got it. But we do know if he did an interview Dylan Mortensen's father. So a couple of things that he stated that were added on or that we didn't know about before was that uh, Dylan Mortensen, you know, arrived home before 2 a.m. and was woken up around 2 a.m. by the roommates coming into the house. That the, the audiobook states that they came in around 2 a.m. and that's when they woke up uh, Dylan. And, and according to the book, they didn't go to sleep right away. The book also states that it talks about the injuries. Uh, apparently, the coroner had spoken to the victim's families. Descriptions of the uh, the victim's injuries were that their flesh had been torn, you know, trigger warning, flesh been torn with a massive knife. And that one was that had significantly more injuries, such as like um, overkill was the word that Melissa yeah. J uh, used for that. Dylan was sleeping, woke up at 2 a.m. because the roommates didn't go back to sleep right away. Stated that at shortly after 4 a.m., Dylan heard what she thought was Kaylee playing with the dog. And why she thought she heard Kaylee playing with the dog was because she heard the dog barking and movement across the floor. Uh, she stated that, or I don't know what she stated, but the book stated she couldn't sleep because of the commotion. She actually yelled out, be quiet and trying to sleep. So when she yelled that out is yeah. when they were upstairs still. So my thoughts that maybe perhaps while he was in the room with, you know, in Zana's room, when Dylan yelled out and he just didn't know where it came from and took off or probably not accurate. So I, I, when something comes out that differs from our thoughts, we have no problem going with what the evidence is and what the statement. We don't stick to a narrative, basically. Yeah, yeah. 
we always look at it from like what how do you say from what how many feet away <laughs> you always look at it from like 20 feet away oh yeah from like 100 feet away 20, 30 30 maybe 10 for me because i need glasses so you're drinking a little bit it's like five so it says here that um or i wrote down because I, I wrote down basically the, the main parts of this after hearing someone say she said that she then heard somebody say someone's here she says she opened up the door she looked up the stairway, didn't see anybody, looked in the kitchen, didn't see anyone, and looked towards the living area, didn't see anybody. She then hears somebody crying, and it describes what sounds like tears. And she opens the door, still doesn't see anything, mm -hmm. right? But when she opens the door, she hears the man saying, it's okay, I'm here to help you. So when she heard that was while the door was open. So she assumes, or, or Melissa Jade went into detail, basically saying that, the the assumption was that it was just the party goers and the help thing was was Ethan or, or somebody else, but it was a male's voice that said, you know, I'm, I'm here, to, I'm I'm gonna go get help, something to that effect. And then she opened the door a third time because uh, she heard some more like crying. And when she opened it the third time, she saw a black figure walking towards her in the dark, very dark, wearing uh, a mask that covered her, covered his mouth and nose, had bushy eyebrows and walked past her. So th those were the uh, basically the differences. We now know that there was quite a bit of commotion and quite a bit of noise during the during the attack. Steve Gonzalez and the family had came out and said that that Kaylee was trapped um, based, basically because of where she was laying. She was laying between Madison and the wall. So when the attack happened first with Maddie, that she was trapped between the wall Maddie's body and allegedly Brian Koberger, yeah. Yeah. It's just better that they didn't hear crying, right, on two separate occasions, right? Is it, was that common? You know what I mean? Because, like, if I hear someone crying in my, like, where I'm staying, I'm going to go investigate, you know what I mean? But I'm guessing that was common, like, to, for her to hear people. I mean, to hear people, yes. You know, it sounded like, you know, I couldn't tell in... Uh, Melissa Jade's, what do you call it, in, in her podcast, uh, some of her thoughts and speculation and what was coming out of the audiobook. So I'm actually going to go and buy the audiobook myself and listen to it. Well, I was just saying that if it's, I think it was common for her to be hearing people cry at, around the, that time of night, you know, for right. her not to go investigate, you know, you know, and, and to be honest, like, you know, to look at it this way, like, what if, what about if she did go investigate? She would have been another victim. It kind of goes, it kind of goes both ways. It's kind of murky, you know what I mean? Murky yeah. water in that one. Yeah, no, I understand what you're saying. And yeah, I mean, I wouldn't think that that's a common thing, but it definitely sounded like, according to this book, that she was more confused with it being somebody that seriously committed a crime and or someone who uh, is just a party goer. Because by the sounds of what was coming out, it seemed like, like Dylan didn't know and decided to go to sleep, which just doesn't make any sense, to be honest with you. But, you know, as people do things, sometimes it just don't make sense, yeah. Yeah. especially when they're put in the, the most pressure of, of situations. Stress can make people act kind of weird. Yeah, you know what I mean? For sure. Angel D says there, there was a lot of confusion regarding what Christy told Daniel about DM contacting everybody in the house at 420 a.m. Can you clarify, please? Yeah, Christy told me that there was a rumor that apparently Dylan had called out everybody in the house, whether that was verbally or over the phone. She wasn't sure. And then I reminded her, I was like, hey, well, you have the phone records that Dylan call her. And she said she went back and looked at that Dylan had not called her now. It was text messages or or any of those things that doesn't show up on the phone records, but that there wasn't a phone call made at 425 from Dylan to, to Kaylee. Now, if she called somebody else, whether it was Anna, Ethan, or Maddie, 
I don't think they're aware of. Karen D comes in with a 999 super chat. Thank you so much. I've been wondering about the door being closed in Xana's room and the theory that he would have minimized any touching. Do you think BK closed the door? Or was it moving inside once he left? The way Melissa Jade made it sound, it sounded like she still heard crying after the guy left or while he was leaving, that crying could still be heard. And if that's the case, then that means that definitely there was some movement there. Um, after the fact. We do know there was a loud thud at 4.17 a.m. Uh, is it possible that one person was attacked in the bed and, you know, maybe perhaps didn't succumb to their injuries yet and fell off of the bed and maybe perhaps landed between, you know, landed on the ground in front of the door, which is what made uh, Hunter Johnson struggle in the morning the next, or in the next, I guess, noon. Yeah. Right? To, open it? Uh, to get through the door, yeah. Mm-hmm. Would have minimized touching. Yes, I 100% believe that he would have minimized touching let's just say i have reason to believe one and then i also found a um was it a conference with chief fry where he mentioned that the back sliding glass door uh, was still open when officers arrived the way he said it could it have been that it was open because that's where you know hunter johnson and whoever else came to the house entered the house and opened the door and didn't close it or did he mean that it was open all the way since uh, the the murders. And in my opinion, I think it was. Reason being is we're talking about a very highly intelligent guy, somebody who's aware or understands how police investigate people, what they'd be looking for, especially in forensics, right? So if somebody were to come into a house and you know that somebody entered the house that shouldn't have been there and left the house that shouldn't have been there and there's no visible sign of uh, breaking and entering, right? Everything's closed, right? You're going to want to go and kind of look to see to rule out some things like for instance you're gonna go to the window panes and look at the dust if there's dust there then person didn't open a window and come in through there you know look in and see if there's um you know uh, footprints in anywhere and and things like that right when it comes to entering and leaving i i believe that there's probably something that made police believe that the door was open from the outside and never touched again from the inside the reason why you do that is so that way every time you touch something brings up the likelihood that you could be leaving your dna behind you know what i'm saying so regardless who did it yeah not only that but like in the pictures they took that that latch right the the little handle latch yeah i think they put it in evidence to to test it yeah i think so too and which so apparently this guy and police were aware of this uh who put the book out and how do i find it it's on amazon um let me share my screen while Idaho slept. Um, yeah, just go check that out. I think it's the audiobook is five ninety five. You can get the paperback for fourteen twenty four. Audio CD for twenty four dollars. Uh, I still see. I should get a link, right, and put it in one of those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna go check that out and listen to it. I'll probably actually get the um, paperback. That way, I can just read whatever parts I want. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. What do you? What are your thoughts about the surviving victims now knowing that there was enough noise in that house that or commotion that Dylan couldn't sleep because of it, and she still didn't call nine one one, despite hearing all the crying and seeing a person in a mask. It would have been like I would have thought differently if that's all she happened. Like you know that she heard stuff going on, but she never looked outside the door. But the fact that she heard all this commotion, opened the door, heard crying, heard people talking, uh, or heard a person talking, and then saw uh, a person in, in dressed in black through the in the house while it's all dark, goes back into her room and doesn't you know doesn't try to reach out i don't know man it's, i guess like you said people when you you put them in like those high stress situations it just thousand different ways you know what i mean it's like i wouldn't know what to do i mean i'm if i was in that situation i wouldn't know how i would react you know yeah no i, I agree i agree 100 you know it's just hard because everybody's trained from very young you know if something happens you call 911 right 911 is where you go and 
not to just not only not call 911, but also to have other people call 911, call friends over first or summon friends. That's that's the part that kind of really bugs me. Uh, Norma says, who are the four cowboys that went into the house and then left right after it happened? Drip Drop has a video on them. They're probably Idaho State Police investigators, detectives. Here in Texas, when you go and look at like the county police department, or the county's sheriff's department, and you look at the, uh, their sheriffs will wear a specific type of uniform, but when you look at their CID or criminal investigation division and those investigators that are a part of that, they typically wear that type of clothing. Given the fact that this is Idaho range area and, you know, out in rural market, it's probably some just regular detectives going in there and doing some sort of uh, normal investigating. I, I don't think it's anything suspicious. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, here you see it all the time, you know, especially like like last time there was a, I can't remember, it was a, like a, I think it was like a drive-by by my house. No kid ended up passing away from a street bullet, right? I was probably like, maybe I'm like two blocks down from there. Oh, jeez. Yeah, so it would happen around like probably like one o'clock in the morning and I heard the sound, but I, I didn't know what it was, you know what I mean? I was like half, half asleep and then I heard the sirens and then the next morning we passed by. Well, it was like maybe like six in the morning I passed by because that's a lot of the time I get up to go to work and whatnot. I said, why not? So drink. Drink, drink, yeah. drink. Um, and yeah, sure enough, there's detectives and everything, but like you can tell they're the detectives from the police real, real fast because they're wearing different, whole different, the, the outfits are a lot different. Yeah, their attire is different. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they, I, I remember seeing them, they, they pushed everybody out and they, they went in there. I guess it was like a second sweep or something like that. Yeah, 100%. Mitch Girl says, I read an unconfirmed Kaylee was trying to contact Jack because the dog was listening. Now, Christy said uh, she was trying to contact Jack because of uh, wanted him to come over. Nothing because of anything crazy. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? More like uh, two people trying to get back into a relationship together. You know what I'm saying? So it, it wasn't nothing nefarious. And Jack is, from my in my point of view and from what I know and what has been put out there, the extent that the Gonzalez family went back into him, the fact that he passed a lie detector test, the fact that his phone was forensically gone through and he was very cooperative. I don't think he has anything to do with this case. Yeah, uh, for sure. You know what I mean? I mean, in the beginning, like the thing that we heard about Jack was like, oh, you know, the, the statement that they has said that um, people got cured too soon, too fast. Yeah. And then we come to find out that it wasn't, you know, that actually went through an interview, a polygraph, you know, they, they right. took pictures of him. So it wasn't that fast like everybody thought it was. Right. And, and well, they, I think they, they were more in depth investigation you know, on him at least. Right. I think they were referring not 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 so much to Jack because they, they were saying that Jack was innocent this whole time. But yeah, there yeah. was a lot of people that were getting cleared right away. Yeah, 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 no, I wasn't saying there was Jack. I was just saying they were saying in general there were some people yeah. that got so everybody like assumed it was like that everybody just got clear real fast, including Jack. You know what I mean? Why, why was Maddie also calling Jack? I mean, like if, if somebody or something serious was happening, I don't know if you're also going to call you, you know, your best friend's boyfriend. Now, as far as the whole dog thing, you know, is Maddie also going to call him? I don't know. I don't. I, I think I, I've never heard that about the dog. You no, know, like I said, Christy has said it that it was nothing nefarious. I think that. What it was was just her probably calling from two different phones to to get him to either wake up or whatever. I mean, there's a possibility her phone died or something. I, well, I, mean, I don't. Yeah. What, do you, what do you think? Well, it could also be you know maybe they had some. I know they had just broken up, right? And it could have been maybe she thought that he wasn't Nancy her for a certain reason. Maybe they had a somewhat of a disagreement earlier that day, or so they tried to call for her phone, didn't answer. Ended up using yeah very much so like yeah that and also like maybe he has a separate ringtone like maybe for instance when Kaylee calls it's some sort of like sweet song that doesn't wake him up yeah like a personal yeah when anybody else calls it's like a ring that could wake him. I, I don't know 
but from what I understand, it was uh, two girls just you know, hanging out that night. And, you know, basically what it has been alluded to me was they were just talking about boyfriend stuff and the calls to Jack were nothing nefarious at all. Uh, DB tape says, Daniel, what do you think about Payne and Blaker didn't arrive until 4 p.m.? doing interviews at the station, et cetera. Yeah, exactly what they were doing. So Christy had told me that uh, Jack Decor was woken up by his roommates around well, sometime before, between noon and 1.30. And the reason we know it's between noon and 1.30 is because police were already there. Police weren't called till noon. And Christy Gonzalez had told me that she attempted to call him at 1.32, and he didn't answer. And that was because he was already at the police station. So sometime between noon and 1.30, um, he had walked over to the 1122 King Road residence, his house or where he was living was just a block down the street. So he'd walked up there and he told an officer, he asked an officer what was going on, that his ex-girlfriend resided there. And, he, and immediately he was told that he'd have to go to the station to answer some questions. He had been there throughout from that point late that night. So, you know, if you have a situation where you have what was known at that moment, right? You had four people whose lives were taken with a knife, which typically in most cases, you know, just going into a day one, a knife being used, that usually sounds personal, right? Then you have one person that has significantly more wounds than the other three. And that person has an ex-boyfriend uh, that were recently broken up. And that person was with the ex-boyfriend the night before at the corner club. And that person's also the person they were calling at 3 a.m. You have all those things that kind of point towards a certain direction that can kind of allude to that. So when that guy walks up and says, hey, you know, I'm the ex-boyfriend, you're going to want to interview the crap out of that guy. And it's not going to be like, hey, you know, let me see your shirt and pick up your shirt. Let me see your chest, your back. We're going to take pictures. It's going to be pretty intense, repetitive over and over again. So, yeah, for, you know, these officers to get there at 4 p.m., it sounds it sounds plausible. It's it's nothing that is suspicious by any means whatsoever. Yeah. And not only in this case, you know, you know almost every crime of, you know, murder mm. um, is usually they usually interview the their significant other first, right? Yeah. And that's the the go to at first because that's the one that they have the most contact with daily. Right. And then also you have two people that survived this incident. So they're probably getting questioned like crazy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, those things are typically done probably by, you know, the investigating detective and you know those people are brought in and you know you're gonna want to talk to them. You're probably gonna have some sort of idea about the scene. Uh but yeah. It's not suspicious at all. Uh, Terry Blue says August 2023 20, Idaho deputies are allowed to wear straw hats now. And, and you know, if that's on duty, CID don't wear, uh, or typical CID don't wear uh, police issued uniforms. They wear, you know, um, business attire or professional. In certain areas, especially rural areas, that attire is a uh, cowboy hat and vest, whole nine yards. I mean, I got a cowboy, I got several cowboy hats and <laughs> I have several. Uh, pairs of boots, the whole nine yards. Yeah, I, we, I'm from Texas, but I don't own any of that. But I do own a pair of bands. Uh, Kay's family said she she called people insistently uh, for any reason, and that's true. I mean, I didn't get to the specifics about you know when I was talking to Christy about Kaylee's phone habits, to be honest with you. But I had heard that before that she had a habit of making phone calls to people all hours of the night and things of that nature. In my opinion, Dak. Jack didn't want to hear from Kaylee that night because it was about getting back together. Maddie is with Kaylee, so he didn't want to answer her calls. Yeah. I don't know. You know, I kind of, what he said afterwards that he kind of felt like that he still wanted to make it work. You know what I mean? Like, because he was saying that it was a love of his life and whatnot. Like, it kind of like, I, I would think if he didn't want to end the relationship, 
and she did, and she was trying to reach out to get back together. I think he would jump on that. You know what I mean? On that. But I don't know. Yeah. Could be wrong. Yeah. No, I see your point. The other thing we have to remember is that at one thirty, um, Jack basically had left, or before one thirty, I think it was closer to one o'clock or twelve thirty when Jack left the corner club because he was already tired. And so he was tired. He wanted to go home. He didn't want to go to the next bar. So. You know, two thirty comes around. He took off at twelve thirty, twelve forty-five to go home. You know, two thirty is like almost two hours later after a night of drinking, and you're already tired. I, I don't. I'm not surprised if he fell asleep. I don't know about that. Jack was with another girl. Who knows? I don't know. I don't. I mean, I don't know. I honestly don't. Yeah, if you have any questions, you know, throw them out. This tonight we want to have a little bit of an open discussion. If anybody wants to jump on, we got about maybe fifteen twenty minutes. Yeah, we can do it. If you want to jump on, let us know and. um We'll give you a couple of minutes. You're going to have to show your face before we bring you up, though, at the bottom. Once once you show us your face and you give us the thumbs up that you're good to go, we'll bring you in. It's in the live chat, y'all. If anybody wants to come up, ask their questions, comments, the whole nine yards. You don't have to show your face on the screen. Yeah. yeah. If nobody wants to come on, it's because Blue's not here. Okay? I'm sorry. Yeah, we try to get him here. We try to do everything. Let's see what we're going to do. We're going to kidnap him. But that, yeah, he was, man. We couldn't get like at least four or five guys. We tried. We tried. But he had some. He had a performance that he was doing downtown. Mm-hmm. And um, he's, he's going to be singing, singing on a pole. Something like that. Something. Okay. <laughs> Norma goes, I, I've been to parties. I went to sleep and slept all night and heard nothing. Yeah. I mean, when you're drinking and if you're drinking heavy and, you know, it's been reported that the night before people were drinking real heavy. There was a big party in the area and everybody was partied out pretty much, which is why the area was so quiet. I also think that the police in that area had something to do with it. What about the video from across the street where you had the screenshot of did it? Did you ever hear more info? Yes. So according to Howard Bloom and according to some other folks and other sources that I have, that is not Christie. I want to clarify that. Christy didn't tell me this at all. But from what I understand is there was the Linda Lane footage that had gone out and there was some audio that was put out there with it at the same time. And there was some things that sounded kind of weird around 1.30 and 2 o'clock. And from what I understand was that that screenshot was released by Steve because they have that video. And in that video, there's none of the screams or dog barking at the times that are indicated from the Linda Lane footage. There's none of that on there. And since that camera was significantly closer to the victim's home, which the Linda Lane footage was about a football field away and two apartment buildings, it would have more than likely have also been picked up on the closer camera. And it wasn't. Uh, It was basically been put out there to debunk the noises that were heard on the Linda Lane footage. Now, me personally, I think that the visual, what you see in the Linda Lane footage is real. I think yeah. that in some of what you hear is, but I think that there's a possibility that other things could have been added. Yeah, I feel the same way, man. I think there was some stuff added. There is some the the, the way the film itself, like the images are real, but mm-hmm. I think some of the, the noises were, you know, put in there. Yeah, 100%. David says, do you think the full truth will be out someday? I think so. You know, as soon as they set a trial date and everything comes in order, I think we're going to find out that this case probably isn't as mysterious as everybody's thought it to be the Delphi case. Now that is crazy. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not saying that this one isn't, but the stuff that's coming out and like, I would have never believed that in a million years. Yeah. Well, for sure. That one does seem a lot more, that one looks like it's going to have a lot of twists and turns. This one's a little bit more straightforward, but it still is going to have its twists and turns at the end. But the other ones, the, the Delphi ones, like a M. Night Shyamalan movie. Yeah, 100%. Angel D says, do you think the secret informant is his sister? I mean, I don't know. Sister came out and, well, there's been rumors that 
and NBC had also reported that the sister, they have sources that the sister had made some weird statements about Brian Koberger, that he was wearing gloves and that seemed odd and that they speculated that he may have committed the crime and this, that, and a third. If that stuff is true, if that has ended up being true, that she did state those things, and I think that there's a good chance she could be one of the secret informants. You know, I personally think it's the DoorDash person based on what I read in the probable cause affidavit, based on the fact that that person was there. And I'll say this, the DoorDash person is not who Christy had told me who they thought was the uh, uh, the informant. Uh, it was somebody else. And so um, <clears throat> I do want to clarify that. That's my my thought my own thought um and so is the sister that's my thought based on the words that they're saying and then also based on the words in the probable cause affidavit if you go back to the probable cause affidavit it states that the doordash person uh, basically self-reported that xana had received the doordash order so that person came forward if any part of the howard bloom article is real if any of it is truthful and there was an informant and, you know, people were getting close to that person, but the FBI got involved and said no, because it was through a tip. That would make sense. The DoorDash person, you know, I don't, I don't know if BK's sister sent in a tip or anything. The statements, it sounded, what it sounded like to me when it came to, to BK's sister is if those statements were made, I don't know if they were come from a tip or they came from the scene you know, while they were there, or that maybe perhaps if she did make those statements, she may have gone directly to the police. And those wouldn't be the same thing as a tip. But good question. Thank you. So what's the court hearing about in two weeks referencing? Oh, man. Um, I think it was the grand jury, if that's going to be um, kept or not, if they're going to throw it out. Uh, so I think that's what it's going to be about. I'm, I'm excited to see it. You know, like, I, I still have a hard time with the informant eyewitness kind of thing. You know what I mean? When it comes down to the DoorDash, I, I, I feel like she's she witnessed something or at least a car similar around that time. You know what I mean? Um, right. I don't know if that would be, an, it would be called an informant, though, no? because informant usually means that they have information that other people don't, right? And the eyewitnesses just, just have information just that this person saw something around the same time that this crime was committed, no? Uh, maybe. I think, I, think, I think it's the other way around. I think that a witness is an informant but an informant isn't always just a witness right? because if somebody saw something, they have information about what they saw. When they say that they had an informant come by, it doesn't necessarily mean it was a witness. It could have been somebody that knew something after the fact. Uh, it, it can be played both ways in this scenario, you know, claiming that there's a witness or a secret informant. If they ever use the word witness, that tells me that, that they had to witness the crime. If, they, if it's just strictly informant, it sounds like they have information by other means, like somebody told him something, Brian Koberger saw, said something, they saw something that wasn't directly connected to the crime, such as, you know, a person wearing gloves and cleaning their car out with bleach. You know what I mean? That's information that, that the police don't have. Or right? including like buying these, these things, right? Yeah, 100%. Is it a witness? Is it a uh, informant without without information? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But we have our first person um, oh, coming you. in, coming in. Terry Blue says, we love you too, Jaime, with a 199 Super Chat. And then she thank decides you. to let's see. Terry Blue says, our informants in this case, it seems like it came out of nowhere. Prior to the Howard Bloom article or podcast that came out not that long ago referencing a, an informant, I honestly thought that the informant was uh, the relatives of Brian Koberger that were, I guess, built used to build the genetic tree that pointed towards him. I thought those were the informants. Anybody outside of that is was a complete surprise to me. What, what did you think? Well, the, when it comes down to the informant, did they? What are the what are they saying? Is it tip line or is it straight to get an interview? 
You know what I mean? It said that according to Howard Bloom, that um, from the tip line, right? That it came in initially through the tip line, which is yeah. why they had to protect their identity. You got to, you got to. A lot of people were like, a lot of people called into that tip line. I know they were having trouble trying to keep up with all the tips, and every tip has to be investigated and see if it's it has it can hold water, right? So like maybe it came in a lot earlier and they just got to it late or whatever because it, they didn't have that big of a force to begin with. So. I don't know. I think the informant and, uh, and DoorDash is two different. Two different peoples. Two, yeah, two different people. It's possible, man. It's possible. Like hell, when Brian Cooper got arrested, I didn't know who the hell Brian Coburger was. You know, people come out of left field just because yep. their name hasn't been brought up in the spotlight, so to speak, doesn't mean that they don't play an important role in what happened. Right? We just don't know about it. And so, like you know, what ends up happening is people will get like a cast of people and say, "All right." You have Ian Harsh that lives nearby. You have another neighbor that lives nearby that was the guy trying to be a lawyer that everybody thought was was guilty to. You have the boyfriend, the ex-boyfriend, Joe Showalter. You have uh, Adam. People are like, all right, the answer is here. It's all right here. And they're tunnel visioning into these small amount of people, not realizing that. There's a whole lot of other people that could possibly not necessarily be involved in the case, might have some information, might have seen something, might have uh, known something or also talked to or known Kaylee or Maddie. Like, for instance, Ethan and um, Zana had gone to, I think, two separate parties that night. Ethan went with his brother and sister to one party and then went back to the Sigma Chi party afterwards where Zana was already there. That's like hundreds of people. That we have no idea who they are. They came in contact with these people the night of the incident. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So we just don't know everybody that's involved. But I think that if, you know, if it's not, you know, um, DoorDasher or maybe BK's sister, I think it's somebody that could possibly just come out of left field that we have never even heard about. Yeah. And everybody's going to be like, who? <laughs> yeah, just like, like in Delphi, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Amy Brennan says, is it possible in your opinion that Dylan might have identified Brian maybe from a photo lineup? I think it's possible. I'm not entirely sure that it would be valid and or if it would hold a lot of weight just based on the description of where she saw it and the environment around yeah. her. So it's possible. But I just even if she did, I don't think it would um, it'd be very useful. Tara, welcome back. Can you hear hey. us? Can you hear me? Yes, ma'am. I can hear okay. you. Um, I wanted to know um, if y'all found out if the judge is going to let cameras come in yet have you heard uh, anything i think that i heard that for the this court that they were that it's going to be the same format that they've been doing where as soon as it's over or an hour and a half after it started is when we'll start to see things coming in okay <laughs> why do you think that if if it allegedly is brian why do you think he committed a crime in idaho where they have the death penalty and they don't have that in Washington. Well, I think that if he committed the crime in Washington, that it would have been easier to trace back to him. You know, if we look at the fact that his alleged path home, he didn't go directly to home in Washington because had he done that, you know, officers are going to investigate and say, all right, you know, let's look at the cameras that are entering Blaine, Idaho. If the killer went that direction, a white Elantra should be entering around this time. Let's look at Genesee. Let's look at Pullman. Let's look at Coeur d'Alene, right? North, east, west, south, all directions. And he went that extended route because if he went directly home, he would have been there between 10 to 25 minutes. Instead, it took him significantly longer. That was to elude said investigation. So, yeah. So if he would have committed it in Pullman, what we know now is once they got the name Brian Koberger from the genetic uh, tree, 
they started to look into them. And I think at that point is when they discovered the white Elantra coming into Pullman at 536. And that's because, well, they knew that he was from Pullman, Washington, and that he would have had to have gone home somehow, some way, and gotten there at a specific time. So they just watched the film longer, and that's when they, they got him in. Uh, I got to – my answer is a little shorter. And <laughs> I just the fact – I don't think he cared. I think he, he thought he was going to get away with it. So it really didn't matter where he was going to be at, either there or Washington or Texas. It doesn't matter because he thought he was going to get away with it. Allegedly, I think so too. That's true. I mean, that, that that is true. To me, I just think that it had more to do with, you know, had he done it in Washington, cameras would have been utilized. And unless he left Pullman and then came back, it would have been – well, he would have had to have also done that to have gotten there. He would have had to have left Pullman, gone this weird elaborate route, gone somewhere else for like a day or so or a few hours, and then go back to Pullman, commit a crime in Pullman, then leave and go back a different direction. So that way you elude law enforcement that you live in that town. I think it's just easier to do it, to, you know, going to a different town, committing a crime with somebody you had no contact with, no relationship with. Uh, that way there's no connection to you. Do you think he alleged had a accomplice if he did it? I don't think so. What do you think? I'm... No, just for the fact, like I said before, that with more people in said crime would take a, it'll be a bigger risk to get caught why did he why do you think he brought his phone when he studied like his minor was cloud forensic if it wasn't for the knife sheath being left behind him turning his phone off for the time that he turned it off and the distance in which he turned it off worked they weren't looking at him because of his phone they had done a they had pulled a a warrant for the 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 phone tower closest to the king road residence and basically looked at everybody's phone who was connected to that tower during uh, the time of the murders and within a, what was it, like a third of a mile radius. Koberger turned his phone off at 240 something, uh, 250 something in Pullman, and then turned his phone back on 25 minutes afterwards, several miles south. Even though he took his phone and turned it on, had he not left the knife sheath, that the, the actions that he took been enough to uh, elude law enforcement, which it was. It wasn't until they, they got his name that they were able to figure it out. Um, apparently, he's a bad driver because he's gotten pulled over like three times. When they were looking for an Elantra, it should have um, ringed the bell in the cop that pulled him over when he said, we don't have pedestrian walks or something like that in Pennsylvania. And he asked her literally for to see the rules of the law. Not many people do that. So I think that would have, she would have remembered that when they were looking for white launches. Maybe she did, mm. but his was the wrong year. Um, I'll be honest with you. Officers pull over a lot of people throughout the day. They made contact with a lot of people. Yeah. 22,000 white Elantras in the area to remember specifically one and one interaction. It's difficult. I mean, even for, for me, where you go to court a couple of months after you issue a citation if somebody's going to fight it. And there's been times where I'm like, I don't even remember this traffic stop, period. Yeah. I think if there was a be on the lookout, it would have been a different story. You know what I mean? All right. Uh, but like, if they know about him, then none of these officers or whoever stopped him, not going to pay no mind to it, you know? And even if they did, let's just say that they remembered. Mm -hmm. They're like, oh, yeah, there's Brian Koberger. It's the same thing that happened November 29th. They had his name then, but because of the actions that he took, taking that long drive to Pullman, uh, turning his phone off, you know, for the period and the distance that he had it off, they looked at him and said that he wasn't the guy and moved on to the next dude. Brian Koberger's plan would have worked had it not been for that knife sheath. That's so crazy, right? That's so insane. Yeah, apparently he was pulled over like 
three times before even the murder occurred. Right. Yeah. And then do you yeah, think yeah. that do you think the two times that he was pulled over on, on his way home to Pennsylvania, do you think that was arranged? No. No, not at all. You can tell by the actions of the law enforcement officers when they approach the vehicle. Uh, both of them have their hands at certain points of the traffic stop, just kind of hanging in there, you know, talking to Brian Koberger like he's just, you know, cool kid or whatnot. You don't really treat a quadruple homicide suspect in that manner. You know, you're pulling him over. He doesn't know why you're pulling him over. Right. So let's just say it was arranged. And um, let's, I'll, I'll say that I'm Brian Koberger. If I'm driving, I committed this crime and I know I committed this crime. They're looking for a vehicle that looks like mine. I see lights coming up behind me. I'm not necessarily automatically thinking that this is first and foremost a traffic stop. Yeah, I'm thinking they're coming for me, right? And the officer behind them that's lighting them up has to think that that's what that person is thinking too. And in those type of situations, people are desperate and they'll do things. Mm -hmm. And you don't want to approach that just kind of like unprepared. It's an officer safety issue. So yeah. based on the demeanor of the officers, I don't think so. What do you think? No, for sure, man. I think the way the officer was acting didn't seem like it was arranged or it was a uh, you know planned. Even besides the fact how Brian Cobra was acting, you know, he was acting in a different way as he was to you know the female officer uh stopping him right yeah. other than that like like you said like if he was called in it's like hey this car possible suspect of this crime could be armed i don't think he'll be just rolling up on in close enough for him to you know to get hurt you know i mean he'll take precaution because he was yeah. like hanging in the window right the cop yeah yeah he was, he was hanging to yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. He was hanging in the window. Both of them were. And, you know, that tells me right there that they were not aware. They just weren't aware. I have uh, one more. I have one more question. Do you okay, think the, um, do you think they're going to want a change of venue? Mm, <laughs> I, I would. I think that they've already I think they've already asked for one. And I think yeah. that the decision was they were going to bring jurors from somewhere else. But then. I think the judge was summoned for jury duty for it too. <laughs> I heard that. I heard that. So I don't know. I don't know. It's well, just um, an excuse to get out. <laughs> well, yeah, lied, um, I have one more question. Um, the three DNA that they can't mm -hmm. run because it doesn't meet CODIS, what do you call it? Standards. Rules. Rules. So I guess we need to know which rule it is because CODIS has a long list of stuff. So, and I guess, um, I don't know what y'all's thoughts are, but I guess the three dna we're never going to know well first i want to thank you uh tara for coming on i appreciate it thank you. and asking some excellent questions thanks for having me you're welcome you're welcome so well, i'll let you answer this first time what do you think i think they have to come they have to have evidence that there was more involved mm -hmm. in order for them to to go further in with this um dna if yeah it, if it if it for any reason the evidence shows that it was just one one person, one suspect, I don't think they have the requirements to go and run these DNAs and find out where they're from. You know what I mean? Kind of. You know, for me, I, I don't think that it's not a matter of not wanting to run it or things of that nature. I think it's a matter of priority. It's a matter of um, resources and, and time, right? So you have only so much resources and personnel and, and, and help, right? If you send four profiles to them, you know, to somebody to do a genetic tree markup on, you know, you might get the results might take a while. So, you know, you probably are going to go in order from the one that you feel is the most important. And then as they clear out and you get names, because it's going to be fairly quick, it's easy to clear out somebody. It's not that difficult. You know, if if I got the name, uh, let's just say there's a burglary and there's three you know, DNA samples there. And I got the, the first one was, was big blue, 
right? And I'm like, all right, you know, this was on the mannequin that had the clothes that were stolen. So this one was the closest <laughs> to the item that was stolen. And Big Blue's thumbprint is there. So I go and find out, you know, where was Big Blue at, you know, during the time of the crime? If I find out that that day he um, or that morning he went to the store, bought a, an outfit, touched the mannequin and then left in a rush to go somewhere else for an interview. And and we have him on camera somewhere else. Well, we know it's not him. So you can easily take them out. Now, when it comes to Brian Koberger or whatnot, you're probably going to get his name and you're going to want to try to eliminate him as a suspect. First and foremost, be like, all right, if this person was Brian Koberger, we kn- what do we know? We know that the guy that committed this crime possibly was driving a white Elantra without a front license plate. And they're going to go look at um, Koberger and say, all right, did he operate or have possession or control of a white Elantra without a front license plate? All right. Yeah, he did. Now, we know that this crime was committed between four and four thirty in the morning. Let's go and look to see if Brian Koberger was somewhere else based on his cell phone data and or available somewhere else. They go and find out that his phone was off during that time and they find out that he was moving around that time as well. You know, you you go through these process of elimination and if somebody didn't commit the crime, it'll be pretty quick or soon. I I guess some people can be a while, but Mm -hmm. for the most part, um, especially if you have this much evidence, you have the vehicle, the time um, when it happened and um, you know, DNA on a, on a sheath, it's going to be pretty easy. Now, if you had, we have to remember where those three other DNAs were found. One was found on a glove outside. Like I think it was days after the murder. So there's a good possibility that that item, that glove was dropped there by somebody not related to the case. Yeah. You know, there was a lot. Wasn't the dumpster were like close by, like it could have easily, like they were going to throw it away and they didn't land inside the dumpster and it just kind of rolled over there, blew over there. Right. Or it could have been from a forensic, um, yeah. you know, person, you know, person doing forensics. Some CSI guy had their gloves on, took them off, put them in the back pocket, bent down to pick up their equipment. Glove falls out, wind blows it to the side of the, uh, of the um, property. It's found. They check DNA on it, check it in CODIS. Hey, it doesn't pop because, you know, in order to be a CSI person, you can't have a criminal record. So, don't pop. And now you have an unidentified source, but it's the timing in which it came. You know, it was found days later. Mm-hmm. Then you had um, the other two pieces of DNA that were found in the area of where the bodies were found. Now, there's a lot of information that came out of that um, paperwork. Uh, they were basically trying to disclose things and uh, basically put their client, you know, put him on the pedestal, make him seem like he's innocent here. If there was, in, or in my opinion, if they were going to be describing where the DNA was, it was going to be described as probably the closest possible, closest area to the bodies. Like for instance, if I found a DNA sample, uh, two feet from the bodies. I'm going to say it was two feet from the bodies. If it was uh, on the bodies, you're going to say it was on the bodies. To say that it was in the area tells me that it was somewhere in the room. Yeah, that's pretty been, vague. Yeah, as far away as possible because the defense is going to want to put reasonable doubt in there. And the closer those two DNA samples are to the bodies, it makes, you know, it's going to be more, the possibility for reasonable doubt is there. So like right now, we just know that they were in the area. If it comes out to find out that they found two different samples on the dresser across the across the room. Do you th- would you find that DNA sample uh, more important than the DNA sample on the sheath underneath the body of one of, one of the victims? The, the sheath is going to be priority. Exactly, exactly. So you know the fact that it's in the area tells me it's super far away, and the sheath was probably just priority. Angel D comes in with a question: says if offered a plea deal, do you think BK would take it? I personally don't think he would. What do you think? Uh, considering the death penalty, I think he would. 
I mean, like um, I think Jeff H said, it's like he did everything the the killer would. You know, if he if he if he's innocent, he just has awful luck, like he said. Yeah, you know I mean, there's just way too many there's way too many things pointing at him. Yeah, for sure. Broman says, in my opinion, the killer's car passed the rear end of the door door dash driver's car, and the backup lights let the killer's car see the killer. The information that I sent out uh, to Christy referencing the witness, I had gotten a tip. The tip that I sent out to to Christy was basically. Um, somebody had reached out to me who was close to the door dasher and, you know, their information to check out there from the area. And this is as much as I know, as far as that goes, but according to their story, which is all that I can say that it is because I can't back it up one bit, but this person offered me their, their personal cell phone number and, and a lot of information about them. And, um, basically what they said was that the door dash person had went to go drop off you know, the DoorDash order and had seen the white car passing by a couple of times. They had, she had noticed, she or he had noticed it. And here he saw somebody, a male in the white car looking at the, re- at the, at the house when she said that, and what I mean by she is the, the person that reached out to me. I'm not talking about the DoorDasher is the person that reached out to me. Wasn't the DoorDasher. What she had told me was that the DoorDash person had said that they had seen the white car pass by. They had seen uh, what looked like a male looking at the house they also had seen the light in the second floor bedroom window open or or on and the window not open but like the blinds or whatnot i guess were open and apparently a a female could be seen looking outside of the window i'm not sure if that was Zana's bedroom window that they were looking out of or if that was the the window that was right there by the uh the stair staircase going down i just know that it was a window it appeared that according to this person that it appeared that the door dasher had noticed that this female that they suspected Zana had also noticed the white car passing by a few times. The female in the in the window made contact with the door dash or eye contact with the door dasher outside of the house as they both, I guess, realized that this white car was just driving around quite a bit. It makes sense to me. You know, you have a door dash driver out there around 4 a.m. in the morning and you have Brian Koberger allegedly driving by at like 3.53 and at 4.05. And then like, you know, if they have every, all these things that they can, you know, point at him, then he comes in with his alibi. <laughs> Who empties their trash into the neighbor's bin at 2.30? <laughs> that doesn't necessarily mean that he's killer, right? But you, you add that plus the gloves plus the cleaning. the cleaning and the suspicious behavior alleged by possibly the sister. It's mm-hmm. It all adds up. It all adds up. Crazy, Maybe the neighbor at his apartment or DD driver lives in Pullman. I don't recall. I'd have to go back and look. This information was given to me like, shoot, I want to say June, July, somewhere around there. You know, I just never said anything or brought it up because there's no way I can, I can cooperate. There's no way I can, unless I talk to the door dash person themselves. And when, when this Howard Bloom article came out, referencing a possible witness. I felt that I had to, you know, bring up this aspect of it. The DoorDash driver looking up at Kaylee's window. It wasn't Kaylee's window. It was the second floor window from the front of the house. So it would have had to have been either Xana's window or the window that's in the living room area. Uh, basically what it was is that they saw the car pass by. I'm assuming the car was passing by the second time coming back around and the DoorDasher apparently noticed it and looked at it and looked at this person was looking at the house. And when this person looked at the person looking at the house, they glanced to see what this person was looking at. And at the house, you could see a light on, which I probably assumed that that light was on already. But in the window, a a woman was there looking down. Brian and the DoorDash person both came to Pullman at about the same time. They were basically following each other. I hope she is well protected. I don't know if they came to Pullman at the same time. 
I don't know if she or he or whoever the DoorDash person went to Pullman afterwards. I'm not even sure if, if that DoorDash person is from either Pullman or Moscow. So I honestly don't know if they went to Pullman. I know that if it was Brian Koberger, his phone turns off at 2.57 or something like that in the morning. And at 3.26, he's seen on camera for the first time on Indian Hills Drive. So unless they were both driving from Pullman. And the other thing is, too, I don't know what the DoorDash order was. You know, I'll reach out to this lady and ask if she can tell me what the DoorDash order was. I'm not necessarily sold that it was the Jack in the Box that we see on the counter. And because her friends had said that, you know, getting DoorDash at all hours or you know, mm -hmm. days was kind of a normal thing. Yeah, and not only that, but not only that, but, but there's a lot of other, there's beer cans, Coke cans, all this other stuff around from days prior. So that bag could be from the day before or who knows. Well, I'm not really sure if that's the actual bag that they actually delivered yeah would a crim criminology phd student be educated and trained in keeping dna out of a getaway car i think that he would be trained to keep dna out of their car their personal car period you know taking a scene with you mm -hmm. as it's dangerous so if you go to a crime scene and you have a couple of people like not every crime scene you go to are college students right the majority aren't that they're good college kids that are healthy and, and stuff sometimes you're going to a scene where you're dealing with a couple of maybe uh, some needle addicts that maybe perhaps have certain diseases that can be contracted through open cuts and things like that or, or other things. And you don't want to take that home with you, yeah. right? You don't want to step on something, piece of, you know, blood and then, you know, bring that home, bring that into your vehicle, stuff like that. So they train you on how not to do that, which essentially would be a way of how not to bring a crime scene with you if you commit a crime. I totally agree you know, with you. Yeah. They do a background check for a reason and stuff. So, you know, some people slip through, but eventually, I mean, the people that they train and people that get, you know, apply and get hired, you know, the police department ain't looking at them like, oh, this is a person that's going to come in here to commit this crime or, you know, or anything like that. There's, you know, they look at their background. And these people are supposed to be law abiding citizens and the whole nine yards, which is why I think that he had trouble getting into apprenticeship as a, a Pullman because one, I think that in the spring, he had his issues where he got kicked out. Most recent one was getting kicked out as a security guard uh, that he was working at back at home. He was forced to resign there just before moving to Pullman. So if Pullman Police Department did a background check, which we know that they do based on their, their website, that there there is a background check done on interns, I think there's a possibility he didn't pass it. And the second time in the fall, given his interactions with professor snyder and the female phd student i don't think he would have gotten it then either i don't think he would have passed i'm really starting to question the dd driver something's really off in my opinion i mean maybe i mean she just dropped off food saw somebody driving around yeah and at four in the morning looking at a house suspiciously i mean you know if if i was dropping off food or i mean if you were dropping off food at a place if you were a doordash driver and you noticed somebody driving around you know, and they're just driving slow, looking at the house. Would that catch your attention? Uh, yeah, especially like uh, if they already described that day being real slow. And what, not a lot of things were happening. Then yeah, I would. I mean, I'll probably be eating their food a little bit too. I'll take some. <laughs> else, but yeah, you know what I mean, while I'm not eating their food, I'll probably be watching who's around. You know what I mean? So the DD driver just happened to live 1,200 feet from Brian. Um, I don't know where the DD driver lived. His words. I don't know whose his words are, but or whose his words are. But to my knowledge, I, I mean, I honestly don't know where this person lives, whether it's in Pullman or Moscow or could be Coeur d'Alene, could be Blaine, Idaho. I honestly don't know. 
What happened to that girl with the long black hair that was arrested for possible murders of the boy overdose about a month before these? I always thought she had a role in this. Well, I think that that actually happened a month or two after the Idaho uh, incident. Right. They're talking about Emma Bailey and. Yeah. Uh, it, did happen, know, it did happen afterwards, right? Right. That did happen afterwards. And when it comes to the the drug angle or theory, my thing is, you know, and everybody says oh, the reason why they they arrested Brian Koberger was because they had to find a, a fall guy. Right. The school was coming back. So it wasn't necessarily that they were trying to keep somebody else out of prison. It was so that they don't lose money. If there was a drug connection between any of the surviving roommates or the victims, they had their phone, the police had their phones and forensically went through them. I think that there would have been some sort of evidence connecting to some sort of drug angle, whether it was, I want my money, I want my stuff. You know, those things would come out like, hey, this person is texting some pretty crazy stuff. Let's go look into that person. And if the whole thing was to arrest a PhD student uh, just to get somebody behind bars, I think that they would have, found the drug angle real quick and somebody would have been arrested real fast. I don't think they would have been like, Hey, you know, instead of arresting Demetrius Robinson, who has a lengthy criminal past and uh, issues with law enforcement himself, you know, let's, let's cover it up for him and arrest this PhD student who has this so-called future in front of him. It, it, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, no, for sure. Even, even when cartel thing makes no sense. Yeah, that one definitely doesn't. Mm-mm. I think I did see an article saying that the DoorDash driver lived near Brian. Uh, I haven't read that. Yeah, that would be news to me. Yeah, if you see it, send it in. Yeah, I want to see that. Because the only thing that I have seen about the DoorDash driver was that they reported they dropped off or that Xana received a DoorDash at around 4 a.m. Yeah. And, and here's the thing. According to that book that we talked about earlier, uh, while Idaho slept, Dylan woke up shortly after 4 a.m. And according to the probable cause affidavit, it says at approximately 4 a.m. So after, before, it's going to be around that time. And that also kind of goes for like early on in this investigation, there was the, um, you had the Gonzalez family coming out and saying, no, they arrived at 156 because the police were saying that around 145 is when everybody arrived. I think that was an approximation for everybody arriving, not specifics for every single person. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. And in fact, I I have taken tests and your your statement would be accurate. I got lucky and they put the wrong town for her crime. She walked. I mean, I don't I honestly haven't followed it. I don't know why she walked. Uh, you know, here's the thing. She walked and so did uh, Demetrius Robinson. In my experience, when you have somebody that's been arrested for some sort of drug offense and that drug offense that they arrested them for is super high and then they get out. What that tells me is that law enforcement had a plan to overcharge them and threaten them with a significant jail time unless they started talking about some stuff. Yep. What totally. do you think? Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. They're getting, if they're busted for something big and they're getting off of it, uh, they're, they're, they're singing. They're singing, you know, and, and the thing is, it, you know what they were arrested because, um, they supposedly sold these drugs to this person, but if they didn't put the fentanyl in it and they can say, Hey, you know, this person gave it to us, that person put it in there. Oh, okay. All right. Who's this distributor you're talking about? And so, yeah, you know, there's yeah. probably another reason why nobody's heard from them oh. since uh, if I was them, I wouldn't be out in public either. Not at all. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. It was the private driver who lived near Brian. All right. Good deal. Good deal. Uh, I, I didn't even know that. I know that the guy's name, um, but I didn't know he lived in Pullman. That's interesting. We're going to answer one more and then we're going to call it a show, y'all. Oh, man. And I had to choose the one with the burrow picture. 
what? <laughs> Joe Burrow. Uh, yeah. DD Ohio Girl says, how do they say they know the DD driver lived near Brian? They never have said the DD driver is. I believe they the DD driver is a state's witness. I do, th- I do too. I think that they're possibly one of the witnesses uh, just basically based on how they've been reported to uh, in the probable cause affidavit, how they spoke about that this person self-reported and if Howard Bloom, if anything is accurate in their in their statement, which I didn't ask Christy if that article was accurate or in our accurate or if they, you know, they talked to them or not. When I talked to Christy, that was before they made their statement. You know, it, it wasn't, you know, told to me that way. So if anything is accurate and it was a tip that basically came uh, that created the informant, it sounds like it's the DoorDasher. Do you have any uh, any final questions, comments or anything like that, Jaime? I miss Blue. I think a lot of people will agree. Yeah. Yeah, Blue's the man. Yeah. I like picking on him, but it's all fun because I don't mean none of the crap I say. <laughs> <laughs> you know. He was going to sport out a new hat tonight, so I'm pretty disappointed that he didn't come out. I'm Not only it. were we disappointed, he was disappointed he couldn't do it. That's true. He was very disappointed that he couldn't come out in his special attire for you guys. But he'll be back on Monday. Uh, we will, too, unless something something crazy breaks from here to then. The show in between. But if nothing breaks from here to there, we'll be back on Monday. Uh, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, things of that nature, hit us up at our email. You can, oh, Man, I had the call-in number. That call-in number doesn't even exist anymore. <laughs> I just noticed that at the bottom. If anybody called that number, that number Sorry. does not exist no more. That was somebody, my uh, somebody uh, random is entering, right? Well, that was my um, the number I created for the show, so people could call in. Oh, okay. And what do you call it? Um, it didn't work. It, it kept hanging up on people, so I just deactivated the uh, the app. So I don't even have it no more. But but that said, man, we'll see you guys on Monday. Y'all have a great weekend. Be safe. Friday the 13th. Don't run into anybody with a hockey mask. Be safe. Peace out. Later, man. Thanks, everyone.